Hello and welcome to Hari Cuts. I'm Hari Stephen Kumar and today is Monday, June 1st. It is a beautiful evening this evening as I look out at my lake. Um, but as I record this, the President of the United States has just added uh, a lot more fuel to the uh, the fires that have been burning in this country for the past week or so now. And, uh, and who knows, by the time you listen to this, what the situation might be. Um, and so this was going to be the fourth episode of my Storytelling 101 series, but honestly, this is also a moment that feels like a moment to acknowledge um, what's going on. And of course, the storytelling series and this podcast itself is something that I started when I was recovering from COVID myself um, a couple months ago as a way to offer some respite and as also as a way to offer people, you know, something from what I can do with storytelling to help people take their minds elsewhere from what I've been calling the news of the horrible. And of course, in, in several of the episodes, I've, I've mentioned the context of the global pandemic that we are all in. And of course, in the US, there's been the, the context of the global pandemic on top of what I've been describing as a pre-existing national epidemic of, uh, of stupidity and cruelty that uh, Trump has, uh, is only a, a symptom of and, and not the cause. That's, uh, that's an epidemic that's been well over 20, 30 years in the making. Uh, but of course, Trump in many ways is designed um, uh, quite uniquely to benefit from that epidemic personally. And so, of course, he, he has created the conditions for uh, a much worse disaster with the pandemic. And that was already in place, that disaster with the pandemic before the events of the past week. And of course, with the events of the past week, Trump's own racism and white supremacy are, are on full display. And, and so this is a moment where, even in this podcast, I feel that, along with many, many, many people in the world, um, silence is not an option. And, uh, and so I want to take a moment in this podcast to use storytelling um, as a way to, to mark this moment and as a way to call for justice, justice for Floyd. Um, my own journey in this actually started about 11 years ago when you know, I had just left MathWorks. I had gone back to graduate school to study storytelling and especially to study stories of race and gender and, and politics and uh, the stories that divide us. It was 2009, in July, warm summer day, our country's first ever African-American president had uh, just been inaugurated in January that year. And in July, in Boston, there was this strange incident where Henry Louis Gates, a, uh, a renowned, world-famous African-American professor at Harvard, Henry Louis Gates was arrested on the porch of his own home in 
the little town of Cambridge, just just next to Boston. He was arrested by a white police officer, Sergeant James Crowley, for the crime of creating a public disorderliness. And it's actually because what happened is a neighbor called the cops when she noticed Henry Louis Gates and his African-American taxi driver uh, at the door of Henry Louis Gates' house. Uh, and she assumed that seeing two black men at the door of this house in this otherwise really beautiful uh, residential neighborhood around the corner from Harvard, she assumed that they were breaking into the house. And so she called the cops. And so entered the scene Sergeant James Crowley, who, when he arrives on the scene, uh, the two black men are, the reported threatening, dangerous two black men are nowhere to be seen. And he meets the neighbor who tells him that she has seen them go into that house. And so he approaches the house um, and sees Henry Louis Gates through the front door. There's a there's a glass panel on the front door. Um, and Henry, Henry Louis Gates is on the phone because it turns out that when Henry Louis Gates arrived at his house from a, after a long flight from China, and Henry Louis Gates was, was uh, um, sick with a cold. Um, he found the front door to be jammed and he couldn't open it. And so he and his taxi driver went around to the back to get into the door, his own house. And he was actually on the phone calling to report the door being broken. So when he sees the police officer, he initially assumes that the police have come to investigate. And then he gets challenged by James Crowley to show his ID. And so Henry Louis Gates shows him his ID, but then begins to realize that the cop actually suspects Henry Louis Gates of having broken and entered into this house. So Henry Louis Gates gets upset, as anybody would if you're in your house and a police officer shows up and suspects you of actually not living in that house. And that situation escalates and uh, Andrew Lewis Gates gets arrested. Um, the arrest report reads in a very strange way, like a story. Um, and pretty soon people realize that something strange is up, that the report doesn't tell the entire story. And pretty soon people begin to ask questions. The Cambridge police themselves begin to receive a lot of complaints. Uh, and pretty soon they realize they've, they've made a mistake. Um, and so they release Henry Louis Gates. But the next day, uh, President Obama is asked about this because it turns out Henry Louis Gates was actually a friend of his from when Obama went to college at Harvard. Uh, and so Obama says during a press conference that it's pretty clear that the police acted stupidly for arresting a man on the porch of his own home without checking. Now, that comment that Obama made about the police having acted stupidly that exploded. Um, Fox News and the conservative opposition to Obama, they just had a field day with that. And they began calling him 
somebody who hated the police and somebody who hated, you know, everything that law and order is about. And so within just a day after the incident, the story actually became about Obama's disrespect for the police. And there was a press conference a day later, two days after the arrest in Washington, D.C., where numerous police officers, unions and police officers and police representatives from around the country stood on a stage in front of what looked like hundreds of American flags, these police officers all wearing uniforms and all very, very seriously saying that the president had insulted them, had insulted the office of the police, and had insulted the bravery and courage of the police in, in how they were protecting everyday citizens from the dangers of, of you know, crime and anarchy and so on. And so soon, Obama had to apologize. And so soon, Henry Louis Gates had to apologize. And so soon, Crowley makes a comment on a Boston sports radio show. I happened to be listening to the sports radio show because at the time, I was a Boston sports fan. And sports radio, that sports radio show is pretty unashamedly right-wing, conservative uh, in its in its bent, and they they interviewed the police officer, and he said, you know, I have a feeling that the professor and I might actually we just have a different interpretation of what happened, and I have a feeling we would actually get along if we had a beer together. And that comment, if we if we only had a beer together, that then spiraled into, well, into what became known as the beer summit in August in two thousand nine. President Obama, Vice President Biden, Professor Henry Louis Gates, and Sergeant Crowley met in the White at the White House in the Rose Garden for a beer summit. They each had a beer. Uh, Joe Biden does not drink, and so he had a non-alcoholic O'Doul's. Obama had a Sam Adams. Uh, the Professor had uh, Red Stripe, Jamaican beer, uh, and James Crowley had a Blue Moon, and and that was the beer summit. What should have been an incident where the police of Cambridge, and especially Crowley, who had acted stupidly, what should have been an incident where tougher questions should have been asked, ended up being a spectacle where the first African-American president of our country had to walk back his words of, of justifiably calling the police just as mild a word as saying that they had acted stupidly. Obama, from that point on, would end up being very, very careful in saying anything about police brutality against unarmed black men especially. Until three years later, February 26th, 2012, in Sanford, Florida, it's a chilly, rainy evening, and a young teenager, 17 years old, is visiting his father, and uh, he walks from his father's house down to the convenience store down the street to get a bag of Skittles and some iced tea. And as he's walking back, he's talking on his phone to his girlfriend. And 
He's wearing a hoodie. It's raining, so he's kind of got the hood up to protect his, himself from the rain. And he's talking on the phone, and he's not quite seeing where he's going. And it's it's dark, and it's he's visiting his father's house. He actually lives elsewhere with his mother. And so he gets a little lost, and he's kind of wandering around through the neighborhood trying to find his father's house. It's a gated community. And this car drives by, and there's this man in the car who suspects this young black teenager of being up to no good. So this man gets out, and he begins yelling at this teenager, and the teenager begins to back away and begins to run. And this man now begins to run after him and calls the police. On the audio call, from the 911 call, you can actually hear the police tell this man, George Zimmerman, Sir, you don't have to chase after him. We have police cars on the way. You can stop. And this man doesn't. Turns out George Zimmerman had been wanting to be a police officer, had actually been turned down by police officer school. And George Zimmerman actually had a gun. And so he took it upon himself to be neighborhood watch that night. And he chased young Trayvon Martin. And he finally caught up to Trayvon Martin. A scuffle ensued. He pushes Trayvon Martin. And a shot gets fired. And Trayvon is dead. Killed by George Zimmerman. And now, so of course, this becomes a big case. Um, and people ask for justice for Trayvon. And I was, I was still in grad school at the time. And this time, the story was a lot more tragic. It wasn't just a beer summit. It wasn't just a professor in his fancy Harvard house. This was just a 17-year-old, unarmed teenager visiting his dad, going back home after getting some Skittles and some iced tea. Well, so the case gets taken to court, and George Zimmerman's attorney quickly claims that under Florida's laws, George Zimmerman was standing his ground. And there's a stand-your-ground law in Florida that says that if you feel threatened, you don't have to de-escalate a situation. If you're armed, you can fire in self-defense. And so George Zimmerman, the man who assaulted this young teenager who was just on his way back to his father's house, and chased this young teenager through the dark, rainy night in a in a residential neighborhood, George Zimmerman, his attorney had the guts to claim that George Zimmerman was the one being threatened and that George Zimmerman was standing his ground. And in fact, the attorney for the case brings in a chunk of concrete and says that the concrete was the sidewalk on which George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin were fighting. He claimed that Trayvon Martin was trying to smash George Zimmerman's head onto the concrete sidewalk. And he claimed that this concrete sidewalk was the weapon that Trayvon Martin was using and that George Zimmerman felt threatened by. 
George Zimmerman, the man with a gun, pointed at Trevon Martin. A teenager, George Zimmerman had the guts to claim that the sidewalk, the ground on which Trayvon stood, was in fact a weapon. The jury is six women. Five women are white. One woman is Hispanic. The jury acquits George Zimmerman because the trial really wasn't about George Zimmerman. The trial was actually a trial of Trayvon Martin. Two years later, August 2014, it's a humid summer day in St. Louis, Missouri. 18-year-old Mike Brown is walking away from a convenience store with his friend, Daryl. The convenience store clerk calls the police. There's been some confusion about maybe Mike Brown was shoplifting or walked away with some cigarettes or something that he didn't pay for. Cops show up. They uh, There's a an altercation. Mike Brown is unarmed. But there's a shot that fires through the doors of the police car. And the police officer claims that Mike Brown had reached inside the police car and was reaching for the police officer's gun. And so the police officer felt threatened and shot him through the door. And so... In this little suburb outside St. Louis, Ferguson, Missouri, protests begin. And the whole hashtag Ferguson movement starts. Riots erupt in St. Louis. Riots erupt all around the country. People have had enough, especially after Trayvon. And these riots now begin to take on their own valence. The, the story quickly becomes not about Mike Brown and not about the police officer. The story quickly becomes about the riots and the looting and, oh, how could people be so callous and so so rude and so, so violent in protesting? I remember this because around about that time, I was still in grad school, on my way out of grad school, uh, and one of the ways that people are protesting was to try to block highways. And this got a lot of people really upset, saying, well, even though we don't agree that Mike Brown should have been shot by the police, even though we feel like the police acted stupidly, ah, these protests, ah, I, why are people protesting like this? The Mike Brown case happened just a month after Eric Garner in New York City was arrested in Long Island for the crime of apparently trying to sell loose cigarettes. And in the struggle that ensued, Eric Garner is pushed to the, to the ground and held in a chokehold by one of the police officers, Daniel Panteo. And Eric Garner can be held, can be heard saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And then he dies. 
There are also other stories around this time as as a awareness begins to build in 2014, 2012, 2010 around police violence, police, police brutality. Trayvon Martin <laughs> was judged in the trial of his own murderer using Florida Stand Your Ground laws. In his own death, Trayvon Martin was uh, judged to be guilty of threatening uh, George Zimmerman. And George Zimmerman was acquitted as having stood his ground. That same prosecutor, that same court, that same year, arrested, um, convicted, Marissa Alexander. She was 31 years old. She had fired a warning shot at her estranged husband. She was in the middle of getting a divorce. He, this was a abusive domestic violence situation. He had actually, she had a restraining order against him. He was told not to come to the house. He shows up at the house in 2010, threatens to, to kill her. And so she fires a warning shot. And so her defense attorney also claims that she stood her ground. And she gets convicted to 25 years in prison. Black woman, 31 years old, taken away from her children. Why am I telling all these these stories? Just before George Floyd was murdered last week, we heard the strange case of Amy Cooper in Central Park. Amy Cooper, a white woman, was walking her dog in Central Park without a leash. And she ran into a black man by the name of Christian Cooper, who was a bird watcher. And he asked her to put her dog on a leash because in that part of Central Park, there are signs very clearly saying that dogs have to be on a leash at all times. Partly because it's a birding sanctuary and dogs will chase after the birds and, and uh, cause them to not be there. But also because there are fresh plantings in the ground. And, and Christian Cooper knows all this because he's an avid birder and he, he and his fellow birding enthusiasts have, have seen what happens when dogs are not on a leash. Amy Cooper reacts viscerally and, and says that she's going to call the cops, and that she's going to actually tell them that a, an African-American man is threatening her. She tells him this. She says to him, I'm going to call the cops and I'm going to tell them that an African-American man is threatening me. And so she proceeds to do that. In that case, just before George Floyd's murder, that case was kind of the big news that showed that the Amy Coopers of this world knew full well that in the past eight years or so since Trayvon Martin, that, that you can make bad things happen to black people by calling the police on black people.
And so that brings us to George Floyd, a man in his 40s, outside a convenience store in Minneapolis. The police show up. Ah, but you know the rest of the story. So, what do we do? What can storytelling do? What can any of us do? Well, some differences that I'm seeing. One is that, you know, for myself too, this has been a long journey of learning. I didn't know anything about the history of police violence and police brutality against black people until 2009 when I left engineering to go study storytelling. And as an engineer, and especially as an Indian immigrant engineer, I was blissfully unaware of social injustices. Much of my education had nothing to do with social studies or with politics or philosophy or anything like that. And in fact, how I grew up in India and in the Middle East in the 80s, all around me, were stories of anti-black racism. Stories that were shown in movies, stereotypes of, of black men, especially as violent. But also in the, the jokes and in the stories that us kids would tell each other about black people. And the kinds of things that our parents and our relatives and our neighbors would say about black people. There were very, very few black people, by the way, in the Middle East where I grew up and in India, but that didn't matter. Stories about black people kept showing up in everyday conversation, even though none of us actually knew any black people personally. And so some of these stories have also been stories of learning Some of the stories that people tell each other can help learn a little bit about their own black neighbors, their own black friends, their own black coworkers, their own black relatives, neighbors, strangers. And so some of the hopeful things I've seen lately are more and more people across all races marching for justice. It can seem like the only thing to do is to protest, but there are actually several things people are doing beyond protest to try to make change happen. Prosecutors getting replaced through local elections, sheriffs getting replaced through local elections, and those have ripple effects. I've been encouraged to see some stories come out just a couple days ago of Sheriffs, police officers, beginning to march in solidarity with the protesters. A sheriff in Genesee County, Michigan, which is the county where Flint, Michigan is. That sheriff recently was in the news because he asked protesters what he could do to show them that he's actually there to support them. And they said, walk with us. So he did. He put down his baton, and he walked with them. 
Police officers in New York City recently, some of them anyway, took a knee, knelt on the ground to show support for the protesters. Police unions, police officer unions, have come out very, very strongly condemning the actions of the police officer that killed George Floyd, which is a very, very long way from where police officer unions were back in 2009 when Henry Louis Gates was arrested and when Obama said that the police had acted stupidly. Now, police officer unions themselves are saying not just that the police in Minneapolis acted stupidly, but that they were actually complicit in the murder of George Floyd and that they had actually killed George Floyd, these police officers. That's a hopeful sign. One of the things I used to do with the police report of Henry Lewis Gates was that I used to take that police report and I would have my students actually retell the story in that police report by recreating the scenes in that story. And through recreating the scenes in that story, my students, who had all started out seeing the police report and reading the report and who had all assumed that the police officer was actually doing the right thing and that it was Henry Louis Gates' fault for, you know, getting mad and being upset and being a fancy-schmancy Harvard professor, when they began reenacting the scenes in the police report, that's when the students themselves began to realize that there was something wrong with the story. The police report is written as a story. It's written with scenes, but the scenes don't flow quite right. And there is a curious twist in the plot of the story that the students themselves could feel as they began to experience the story. And in so many of these cases, with Trayvon Martin, with Mike Brown, with Marissa Alexander, with Eric Garner, with George Floyd, it actually doesn't take that much effort to put ourselves into that story and try to just live a scene at a time, to feel the wrongness of a police overreaction. And so here's hoping that we can actually rewrite stories, rewrite the stories of the future. Although what's going to happen is that a lot of people are probably going to react the way that this has played out many, many times. Many of you listening to this probably have heard your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors say things like, oh, yes, the murder of George Floyd was terrible and justice should happen. You know, the police officers should be, you know, something should happen to them. But... I disagree with the violence, the protests, the anarchists, the riots. Ah, don't these protesters know that they're only harming their own cause by protesting this way? I think there is something to be said for that. And maybe some of you listening may feel that too. And I think for many of us, the choice might seem like we either, there's nothing to do, we can't do anything, or, apparently, the only way to say anything about this or do anything about this is to go out in the streets and throw stuff and burn stuff. And I think for us, 
there needs to be a way to think about what's our story going to be? What, what are our scenes going to be? What is it that we want to do in our stories in this moment, in this time, to do something, to say something? So in the description for this episode, I'm posting a link to an article that has several practical, actionable ways to do something for social justice in this kind of time. The article is titled something like 75 Things You Can Do as a White Person to Support Social Justice. And even though I'm not white, I'm not black either. And as a non-black person, even though I'm not white, there are ways in which this particular injustice isn't quite mine. And so in this moment, there are things that I need to do as well. And that what I need to do has to go beyond just <laughs> telling stories about all these incidents on this podcast. And so I want to leave you this, this episode that turned out to be longer than I thought. But then again, the arc of injustice has been longer than any of us thought. I want to leave you with a reflection from jazz musician Charlie Parker. Charlie Parker's story in jazz has a, has a place all of its own. But let me just leave you with this song by Charlie Parker from 1948. Stay safe. Stay human. Stay home if you can. Protest if you can. Stay healthy. Thank you.